BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Thanks to Sana Skin Studio for supporting the No Podcast. Sana is a skin studio that is shifting the relationship with your skin and your products through goal-driven facials, real guidance, and clean skincare. Stay tuned for our promo code so you can receive $25 off of your first facial at Sana Skin Studio. Welcome to the No Podcast with me, Nikki Spo. You guys, welcome to my show, The Know with Nikki Spo. I am so excited that you're here. And today we are talking about pivoting and pivoting and more pivoting. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I thought I would have everything like figured out by the time I was an adult. And I thought that I'd land in a predictable career and build a family and that I would just like finally like arrive, right? Arrive in life. Well, I'm an adult. And I must say that there have been so many times in my adulthood when I did not know what I wanted to do or how to get to the next benchmark in my life, which is why I'm so excited to bring my longtime friend to the show today, Joelle Ashley Barsham. Joelle has been a rising star all of her life. She was made for the stage. I'm telling you, this girl was made for the stage. She's a triple threat, a singer, dancer, and an actress. And I first came to meet her when I came on board as her choreographer for stage performances. And fast forward, our lives kind of took their own turns. She continued to pursue her career in entertainment, which she has had great success in. And I moved into teaching and became a mom. After years of staying in touch, mostly on like social media, we learned that the other is living a sober life. Been able to really reconnect and form a new, deeper kind of life bond through our sobriety. Um, Recently in 2020, Joelle's father passed away. If you follow my IG, you probably know how close I am with my own dad. And for as long as I've known Joelle, I knew that her father was her number one person too. Um, Since his passing, she took over his business, Transitions Recovery Center, having little to no experience running a business whatsoever. So today we are going to talk about what it was like for her to essentially go from living life with limitless opportunities and luxuries with her parents' support to what it was like for her to literally learn how to, quote, adult, right? So without further ado, I want to welcome the shining star that is Joelle Ashley Barchet. Joelle. Nikki. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Welcome to the know with me, Nikki Spa. I can't believe I'm so excited to be here with you. I love you so much, and I'm just so, so happy that we're finally doing this. I love you so much, too. Me, too. I've been, I feel like for months, 
probably a year I've been saying like, hey, let's do it. I'm so happy. I know we're finally here. It's it's amazing. I can't wait. So, all right. So you grew up at 37. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. I yeah. grew up at 37. Yeah. Tell me about that. My life was really easy. I, my, I literally did whatever I want. I had a career in music, not because I had, I wanted to, if I didn't want to show up, I did, you know, it was very much like whatever I wanted to do. Oh, I wanted to act. I went to acting school for two years, whatever I wanted to do. Didn't worry about any finances. I mean, I had an apartment in New York, an apartment in LA, um, didn't know what taxes were. I mean, I literally didn't know what a budget was. Um, oh, I want a car. What car do you want? It was, my life was so easy. And I'm not saying that to brag, but when my dad passed away and my life changed and everything got like ripped up from underneath me, I mean, I had to go to work every day, you know, and show up and be responsible for people. So, you know, it was a huge, I mean, yeah, I had to grow up literally in like the matter of five seconds. When I hear your story, I'm like, in some level, I think I knew that about you back then, right? However many years ago that was, that like you didn't have to work and you could pursue this entertainment, but like it was very foreign to me. So I had no, like, it's almost like we were living completely opposite lives in a sense, right? Like you probably were like, what do you mean you have to work? Like, and I'm like, what do you mean you don't have to work? Like it was completely foreign. I'm like, I could not possibly imagine a life like that. And here you are, you're telling me this. And I want to reiterate like the fact that you're not here to brag about this because I know you, Joelle, and I know your soul and I know who you are. And like, I don't think that money or the way you, anybody grows up, like has anything to do with the type of human being a person can become, you know, and who they are in their soul. So like the way, if you just write these words on paper, it sounds very entitled, right? Totally. But like, I don't know you to be that way. It's embarrassing to even say it, but it's But here's the part is that you're actually fucking saying it. Like how many people don't say it? Like you're like, hold on, wait a second. I've had a silver spoon in my mouth all these years. Like, and that's why I don't know how to do X, Y, Z things. I literally didn't know, you know, like, I, I mean, it's a totally different line of work that I'm doing, but even just paying my own bills, you know, like I always pay my rent and stuff like that, but like, you know, it's not, it, it was, I was still, I still worked hard. Don't get me wrong. I still worked hard You know, I loved what I did, but it was like, you know, like how you said, like, I would never understand, Oh, what do you mean you have to work? You know? And it's not like, I, I'm not saying, I know my parents did the best they could. I know my dad, you know, they wanted me to have everything, but like it was very handicapping at the same time because, you know, when, when at 37, I'm like, wait, now what? I don't even know what to do. And still some days today, I'm like, I have no, but I go in there and I'm like, I'm going to do this. You know, I pray about it. I ask for help and I just figure it out. Okay. Tell us what transitions is. Okay. So my dad started transitions recovery program 35 years ago after. So my dad was a cop initially and he served in South Miami and make a long story short, after struggling with some addiction issues of his own, he went to treatment and was working in treatment and then had an opportunity to start his own place. And, you know, back then he was probably one of the only places in the country, maybe four other places. So, you know, he, my dad was a good man, very like 
you know, he, he took insurance, which, you know, you know how insurance goes. It's like, they give you this, they, you know, you can only do this, whatever. But my dad used to keep the patients and he got in trouble for this because, you know, when it comes to treatment, okay. So transitions is a substance abuse, mental health treatment facility. And, you know, it's a dual diagnosis, you know, we can treat mental health, substance abuse, both either, or, and, um, you know, it's a process getting treatment with substance abuse. So people, you know, by the time they got it, it's residential, it starts at residential. So they would go to detox first. And by the time they got to us, they would just be getting, you know, a little bit less fuzzy, but you know, they, they, the insurance companies would only let us have like 30 days or whatever. And my dad would just keep people. And he would just say like, listen, the insurance and the insurance wasn't paying him, but he would keep them because he was like, you're not ready yet. You know, like, I want you to come here and not have to come back. So, you know, and he continued to live, like, you know, all these places started popping up. He didn't change up. He didn't change, you know, oh, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to do massages. He was like, no, you're coming here for treatment. You know, like, you want to get better or not? You want to go, you know, there's a bunch of other places for different things. Go ahead. But here's where you're coming to get better for treatment. And, you know, that's what he carried on for 35 years. He never, he never faltered on his, uh, on what he believed. So this language of sobriety has been a part of your life for a very long time. And today you're a sober woman. So when, when did you get sober on like on this? Because if he's, he was doing this for like 35 years before he passed away, what, two years ago, like you had been hearing sober talk in your home. I, I did. And I, I remember him telling me because my whole thing was like, oh, I have ADHD and I want to take Adderall because it helps me. And, you know, somebody had given it to me in high school and I was like, you know, it helps me get through school. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> I'm taking this. I can't focus. And so he was always like, you know, they, he, he was really against it. But I still, you know, I was in college at that point And, you know, I, I was like, let me try it, whatever. A couple years into it. I was like, oh, if I take a little more, I can stay up later, you know? And I knew, like you said, from it being in my house, both of my parents were sober. Like, you know, they, they went to AA, they were very involved. I knew, you know, but, but I knew I was like still managing. And once I realized like, wait a second, I'm taking more than my prescription, you know, which most people I don't even think would even realize or care about because they just don't even notice, you know? Yeah. But I realized, I was like, wait, I'm taking more than <laughs> you know, I realized I was just kind of sad. And I, you know, I, I knew I was getting out of control. Like I just knew it. I knew that I was headed for a bad situation. And I called my dad and I said, you know, dad, I think I need, you know, I think I'm using drinking too much and taking too much Adderall. And he said, Oh, we'll go to some meetings. But I was scared that I was going to have like a heart attack or something. I was like, no, I, I think I need treatment. So he sent me away and, you know, I, the fact that he owned a treatment center and had to pay out of his pocket to put me, you know, in, in a place, I was like, I felt so bad, but I was also so grateful that that, you know, I think that helped me too. And in, in, in my sobriety, because I felt like, you know, how could I do this knowing, you know, I guess it doesn't, the, the disease of addiction doesn't discriminate whether you know, or you don't know it's hitting you no matter what. So, you know, I think, you know, even though I knew it and I probably should have known better, I did know better. I, you know, I ended up in the same situation and I couldn't, you know, I, I had to get better and I did. And 
And it wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't that hard. It was difficult because it was like part of it was embarrassing for me, you know, because I felt stupid. Why was it embarrassing for you? Because it's different to know about it than to go through it. Like I even didn't know, you know, I, I think there was like a part of my parents that wanted to keep me like not so involved, you know, like I worked at transitions here and there, but you know, my mom had been like, and my mom had relapsed during this time and she's very open about it. It's not like it's private, but I say that because, you know, she, I had given her Adderall like, and I just didn't even know. Now I know it, you can't like anything. Like if somebody's in sobriety, you know, if somebody's in recovery, you don't give them anything. And I was like, yeah, you're freaking Adderall. You know, like it, it was so stupid, but I just, you don't know the depths of it unless you go through it yourself. Um, you know that I can relate to that, like with my mom too. You know, my mom was an addict and my mom has recently passed away in this past February and um, it's, it's you know, it's okay. But it's amazing what you learn, like when you actually have to walk in the shoes. And I don't want to say their shoes, but like when you start walking in the shoes, Right. And you're like, oh shit, like this is, this is what it feels like to be so low that you feel like you can't live without this um, or that you need to get help. And that embarrassment, I think that embarrassment looks different for everybody. That's why I asked you, like, which part of it embarrassed you? Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, like, it's crazy because when other people tell me, I'm like, you know, that they're embarrassed, I'm like, don't be embarrassed. I'm not, nobody's judging you. But I felt like, coming from a family where I should know better, I was embarrassed that I didn't do better. Mm. Why did you, why did your dad um, decide to send you to a different treatment center? I think because of, because it was a conflict of interest with the therapists, you know, the therapists have all, they've been my therapist since I was born. So it was, right. And they work with your parents. Yeah. And then I did go to transitions afterwards, like for sober living for like four months. And it was the best thing I ever did. I mean, I feel like I learned more than more there than I ever did. Transitions is more like reality-based treatment. So we live in apartments and you live, you know, it's a little more freedom. Like you're not locked down and you kind of learn how to integrate back into society, um, which is, is important for people like us because I can learn how to not drink. But the second I get something, you know, somebody hurts my feelings or whatever, you know, I'm looking for the next thing to make me feel better. I mean, and that's, that's kind of what happened with my mom. Like I remember when my mom ran to the treatment the first time, like the day she got out, it was like, she went right back into her previous setting with all of her previous triggers. And I don't know, like I'm not her and I'll never have an opportunity to ask her this, but like, I don't know what that was like for her. I don't know if she was equipped to handle that reality. Yeah. Because how can you? Yeah. It's hard. And, and I love what you said too about, you know, not knowing, like, there are things that my mom, you know, that I found out later about my mom or my dad. And I'm like, well, you know, but I thought you were perfect. And, you know, I was judging and being like, well, you know, I don't judge many people, but I'm like, you're my mom. How could you do that? You know, now that I'm in a position, you know, say in a relationship or what, I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally understand why she did that. So how old were you when you went to treatment? I was... It was 2014. I think I was 29, 30. So your dad saw you get sober. Yeah. I was sober for seven years before he died, six years. When my mom passed, it was my first like big thing that I went through as a sober person. Like, and I was, I think I had, I was just coming up on my two years of sobriety um, in February. So that was like the first major life situation that I dealt with as a sober person. And I will say that there was a tremendous amount of support. Like I doubled up on going to meetings, you know, for a bit. And 
I was met with a lot of support from people who were like, I remember my first big, like hard life experience or like loss in the family or loss of a loved one as a sober person. And I can't tell you how supported I felt like within the sober community. It's amazing. They'll show up to your house. They'll do seriously, seriously call you every day. I mean, it's, it's a great, I mean, I feel like people who aren't even sober should be sober just because I always think that I'm like a 12 step program. It's like a program for living and everybody needs to do one. They should go after high school. You should be mandated to go to rehab for a year. No, (laughs) and then you can go to college and figure out what you want to do. Because I know had I gone to treatment first, I probably would have done life a little bit differently. Okay, so all those years recording music, performing, just being the star that you you are, what was what was that like? So like, and how did that overlap? Like you're taking Adderall, right? And you're out there singing, performing, dancing. What was that life like for you? Because it sounds like a, a big party, like, and it sounds like a lot of fun, TBH. I mean, it was, like... And there was a while when it was manageable, you know, do a little cocaine here, half, I mean, I still acted like a lunatic. People thought I was like out of my mind no matter what, but that was drunk, sober, you know, like it was fun for a while, you know, it was fun until, until I abused my privileges and, you know, realized that I, you know, I, I may have taken it a little too far, but it was the most, it was so fun. I had a great time recording music I mean I have stories for days you know with with other recording artists I mean you know like I mean I liked drugs I liked partying my cousins are it's, I feel like it's in my blood I don't know if my cousins are Eddie and Alex Van Halen I feel like I just feel like that stuff runs in your blood like my mom's that way you know like we just like the party we like you know to be wild it was fun for a while at what point does it stop being fun like you mentioned that you were abusing your privileges like what does that mean and like what's the context of that for me the hangover got really bad you know my behavior was like really bizarre you know like the people that I chose to spend time with or give my attention to or my energy to you know I realized were like draining me and and I was just I got like sad because I was finding myself for me, it was mostly relationship, you know, like it was the men that I was choosing and, you know, it just, the life, it became very lonely. Like, yeah, it was fun. But like at the end of the day, everybody went home to their families or like, you know, my, I feel like I always used to think that about like my dancers and like, you know, I was like, they all get to go home to their family. And here I am like alone. I felt very alone. I think that everybody's um, interpretation of like, their rock bottom is so different, right? Like I personally don't feel like I had a low bottom. I feel like I had a high bottom. I think a lot of people, and every time I talk about sobriety publicly, Joanne, like I know that you do this a little bit for yourself as well, but every time I do, like I get an an influx of messaging of like, how do you know? Like, how do you feel? Like, Like, how did you know? Or I think I have a problem and I'm not sure. And one of the things that I always come back to is like that it's a self-diagnosed disease, right? Like, and if you have a, if you think you have a problem with it, like you most likely should take a look, a, 
a closer look. Not that you do have a problem, but maybe you should like pay attention to your relationship with alcohol or substance. And when I realized like somebody had said something to me, like, Hey, I think, you know, one of my friends said something to me and I was like, no, I can stop. And then I realized too, I mean, which is probably the biggest thing out of, you know, anything that I said about my, you know, why I got there, like I couldn't stop. I was like, I'll stop taking Adderall tomorrow. And tomorrow would come. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Uh, there's no, I wouldn't fucking stop for five minutes. You know, I couldn't, I needed the Adderall to go get the prescription of Adderall. I mean, I literally couldn't function. You know, I became so dependent on something and I was so tired. Oh, I know what it was. I know what happened. I was at my building in LA and some, I must've been going out somehow. I, there was like an entrance where like you can walk in, but it's like still outside. You walk through this like courtyard or whatever I fell asleep outside my roommate found me and brought me inside and then the next day was showed me a picture and I was like oh no bitch like there's something wrong like you fell asleep outside in the middle of the day I was so like I couldn't believe I I didn't remember I didn't understand what happened and I was like all right I think you're taking it too far okay so you decided that you needed help with the help of a friend, one of my friends had said something to me and, you know, she, I was like, well, do you think I need to go away? And she said, yeah. And I trusted her. You know, I knew that she wouldn't tell me that if there wasn't a reason. I just knew it. I knew it. As much as I came to the screen, but cried, I didn't want to go, but I, I didn't really fight it. I cried and I was like, but 30 days is so long. But I knew in my heart, I was like, you got to go. I mean, that's what this whole podcast is, is right. That deepest inner knowing. And like, when I pitch this show, I'm like, that's such a beautiful thing, right? Coming to, into your deepest inner knowing for the most part. Like sometimes it's not the beautiful thing. Sometimes it sucks and it's ugly and it's terrifying and it's the nightmare that you didn't want to wake up, you know, like that you just, all you want to do is wake up to. Sometimes that deepest inner knowing is like the dark night of the soul before you come to the light again. And I'm so grateful for it because you know what I realized in those moments too is like talking about really knowing I was like, I've spent my whole life, even though I've been selfish in a lot of ways, like draining money and stuff like that, you know, I took care of everybody else. Like my main concern, I never took care of like whatever was hurting me, you know, or what was going on inside of me. And I was like, I deserve that first step with that first step for me was like a huge realization for my self-esteem. You know, like it made me feel like, you know what, you deserve a chance to work on you. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors, Sana Skin Studio. The best way for me to describe Sana is that it feels like coming home. Unlike traditional facials, Sana's facials are rooted in education, and I love this so much. Every experience I've had at Sana has been a chance to learn more about my skin and its needs. I love that the facials are effective while also being accessible enough to be a monthly ritual rather than a yearly splurge. I'm honored to be able to provide our audience with a promo code. Use the code THENOGLOW for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. When your dad passed away in 2020, like, so I mentioned that you and I are very similar in how we like view our relationships with our fathers like you I was really I am really close with my dad and I always recall you being close with yours like even if we weren't like super tight I always even then I still knew that you were really tight with your dad and I know that grief looks different for everybody um what did his passing 
mean for you and your family and how did you guys cope with that? It was very hard. It's still, I mean, just even like, just even you saying that, like my eyes are tearing, you know, like some days are harder than others. Some days, like I, you know, I have it more together than others, but you know, I knew he was sick, you know, but my dad's been sick on and off for years. You know, he had this issue, that issue. And, you know, so when he had, when he got diagnosed with cancer, I guess I was in such denial you know, even though he was walking around with an oxygen tank, like when I look back at pictures, I'm like, how could you not see he looked sick, you know, but he was so tough, you know, like he always just showed up. He always just laughed. He always was, you know, um, it, 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 it came as a shock because it happened, you know, it wasn't like he was sick in hospice. He went to sleep that night. Everything was fine. And then woke up and then, you know, my mom was talking to, you know, whatever. And then she said he laid back down to, to lay down and she just closed his eyes. And so we were all like, I mean, even though we knew maybe it was coming in a few months, but it was a huge shock. I mean, it was, it was, my family fell apart. Like he was, as much as I thought I was the glue, because I think him and I are very similar in person, you know, my mom and my brother are very similar with their personalities, but my dad and I are very like, we want everybody to get along. We want every, you know, it felt like, because then now instead of being four, it was three and there's one of me and two, you know, it felt, it felt like my family fell apart. We all stood up for each other and we all got soup. We've all always been close. Like being close in my family has never been, you know, my, I'm very close to my brother. I'm very close to my mom, but my dad, you know, it, it was, very, it's very hard still. My mom, we're all having a really hard time and it's been two years. I'm so sorry, Joelle. I'm truly, I'm like, I'm just so sorry for your loss. And I know that, that it's so hard because like, there's only so much another person can say or do, but I want you to know that I see you and you know, like I just see your energy and I, when you speak, I feel your dad's energy too. So what is your favorite memory of him? Thank you. And also, you know, that's what helps me at work is I feel so close to him. That's why I like to be there. He used to drive around with this. I mean, this is like one of my favorite. He just liked to play jokes all the time. You know, like he had this this goblin that he would put in my room. Like, so I'd go home and I'd- A goblin? Yeah, like, <laughs> a goblin from Halloween. And it was like, yeah. it looked crazy. And I would go home and, you know, I'd, I'd go into my bed and I'd open the sheet and I'd scream because I'd see this, you know, it was like, this is just how he was. He just, I love that. I can't think of like one particular memory, but just like he loved to have fun. He loved to drive in the car and wear crazy outfits. You know, for Halloween, he dressed up like a genie. He just brought so much joy to like everything he did. So my dad, you know, over the years had kind of gotten out of AA meetings a little bit because, you know, busy in life and whatever. And probably a couple years before he died, he started going back, you know, um, and it was rough for us financially for a little while. He felt really down, felt like a failure. You know, business was rough, you know, all this stuff. And I just remember going to this meeting and literally every meeting we would go to, but there was one specifically that was a birthday meeting. And I mean, I'm telling you, six out of 10 people that got on the podium to speak said, and I want to thank Lee Barshan, you saved my life. Or I want to, you know, I see Lee Barshan. And the joy that it brought me to see him be connected back to AA, to see him be filled, like full, filled with love and appreciation because he was so down, you know, he was starting to get sick and, you know, it just, 
I mean, that made me so happy because I felt like, okay, good. Now you know how great you are. You know, like people are telling you, like, you know, I know that that's not the only way to feel great, but I just feel like he needed to hear it for him. You know, I think you forget as time goes. And I think he didn't know what kind of impression he had on the world. How did um, your life start to change from that point? Like, I know that your dad was like, like the caretaker of the family. You know, when you talked about having to like start over. And so how did your life begin to change from that point on? You know, we realized we were only left with like a life insurance policy, you know, and the company, but the company was being run by his business partner. And, you know, I, I got to a point where I was like, all right, how am I going to take care of my mom? She's 75 or 70 years old at the time. You know, am I going to tell her to go back to work? Like, I can't do that. You know, she's lived this life beyond her wildest dreams. I'm not going to send her. So I realized like, you know, what am I going to do? I went, I, I went into the office and I saw what was going on and I was like, well, this isn't really being run to the best of its ability. Like maybe I can take this and, you know, bring it back to life, bring it back to what it was, but a better version of it. And, um, that's when I started going to work and just really trying to, you know, not only, I mean, listen, when I started going there, I felt that connection to my dad, which to me was so important to me. I was like, I can't, cause we were going to sell the company to the business partner or to somebody else. And I was like, you know, my mom and I had this big thing. I was like, we're not selling the company. Like I give me a chance to do it. We have no, what I was working. Oh, I started working at a clothing store. You know, I had to be there at a certain time. I was responsible and I did a good job, but it was like, I felt like I was working and working and not, I mean, I couldn't pay my bills, you know, like I had to, I mean, I had to adjust my life dramatically. I moved out of my apartment. I moved in with my mom, you know, but then I was like, you know, once I got to transitions, I was like, I can do this. You know, and my mom was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah. And so we did it. And then I just literally, my whole life changed in a matter of like one day and I was had to go to work every day. And what were you thinking going into this without having any experience? Like, holy shit. No, I'm delusional. I was like, oh, this is going to be easy. <laughs> no, you did not. No. Like, yeah, 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 sure. No, cakewalk. cakewalk. I was like, it's fine. I was like, everybody's, we've been doing this for so many years. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Like, they just show up. Like, and then I got there and like the first day, you know, the first couple of days, it was okay. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Hey, yes. Hey, yeah. everybody. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, wait, what? We have to do payroll. We have no money. Oh, payroll. You're like, what's that? Wait, what? <laughs> what's payroll? How do we do that? Do we write checks? We were still writing checks. How did you learn how to do all these things? So I went in there. There was three patients. We used to have 60 patients at a time. Okay. So, okay. So three people were in treatment. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that's not a lot. That's not enough to keep your business going. No, we had more staff than we had patients. Which sucks, right? Like, you're like, yes, we need more sick people. You're like, no, we want to heal the people. But you need the sick people. There's only three sick people in your healing facility. Like, you're going to need more sick people. Right. But they're everywhere. It's just you got to find right. them, you know? Right. But yeah, no, I don't want more sick people. I just wanted to find the ones that didn't have help yet. You know? Right. <laughs> yes, I got it. <laughs> But so I was like, what do I know? So I, I was like, I, I started going to different detoxes. You know, I, I focused on the patients that were there. Like there was a girl, a guy who called me and asked for treatment. She came, the girl came in, there was, you know, that was, she was actually the third patient. So I was like, oh my gosh, this looks so bad. But I just, 
you know, at the end of the day, people want to feel loved. They want to feel cared for. They want good, like, they want good care. You know, yes. so I don't think if there were, if there were 65 people there and she didn't get the attention she got, she would have probably hated it. But the girl who came in, you know, I just, I went there. She was the only female. I would go there. I would spend time with them. And then, you know, I would run to detoxes. I would run to, I would just make phone calls. I would call everybody I knew. I would just, by the next, the next week I had 15 patients in there and then, which was great. Cause I was like, Oh, this is perfect. But then the staff hadn't been used to working because they had been so low for so many months with COVID and everything that now the staff didn't want to do anything. So you're having to manage staff and patients and wear all these hats that you had not ever worn. I've never had to worry. About, and, and they're looking at me. I'm coming in as my father's daughter. She'll, what experience does she have? I knew her when she was a child, you know? And then they have to She's listen. a new CEO, right. Yeah, and I probably, at the time, I probably didn't deserve, like, you know, I don't want to say that, but like, you know, I didn't work for that position until I got there, but, you know, I didn't have the experience. So I was like, oh my gosh, but, so, you know, I was praying, praying, praying. I would, you know, ask questions. I would ask whoever I knew, you know, and I went in with confidence. I felt confident. I, I, I treated people like people, you know, I treated the staff well, I didn't come in there like, Hey, you're going to do this. And I just said, Hey, you know, do you mind how, you know, I, I tried to be, you know, as non-threatening as I could, you know, I wasn't coming in there to destroy everything. I wanted it to be better. I expressed that I had, you know, staff meetings. Hey, listen, I know, you know, this may be weird. Cause I, you know, I'm coming from a situation where I don't really know everything, please, anything you can do to help me, you know, I just want this to work. You're in a unique position in that you're coming into a treatment center to not only better the lives of people who are sick and suffering, but you have the humility and the backing of having worked the program yourself. So even when you come into a situation, you're like, I don't know how to run this business. You have a very key th trait that not all people in leadership positions do have. And it was scary because I don't have the license. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling doctors what to do. And people with licenses, you know? So it's like, but I think you're right. I think there's a lot to be said when you come in and when you're honest and authentic, I think people respect that. Like I I could say, hey, I don't know everything, but don't worry. I'm going to make sure we figure it out. I'm going to make sure we take care of it. You know, and I made everybody feel safe, even when I didn't feel safe myself. You know, like I just knew it would be okay. I had the faith. I believed in myself. I believed in the company. I believed in the people that I, you know, because I, because I did have to go in there and fire some people. You know, I did things that people never thought I would do because, you know, people have been there 20 years. I brought in new people. You know, I. Those are hard decisions to make, Joelle. Nikki, I spent the first couple months, I cried so hard because I was like, you know, but they were there for my dad and they were this and they were, you know, it was, it was very hard to let people go. But I was like, why, you know, when, when you look at like being financially responsible, because I never have been, when you look at that, you see like, you know, does this make sense? Like, what am I, like, it's you and your salary or this company. Like you put your put in a position of like huge responsibility. Have you completely put your entertainment career behind you? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel? And how do you feel about that? 
I'm, I miss it. Like I watch movies and stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I miss, you know, I miss acting, especially I miss making music. I do miss a part of the lifestyle, but I also know that when I was doing that, I wanted something else. Like I want something more. I want not more. I'm not saying you can't get more that way, but I want something different. I want a family. I want kids. I want a husband. I want, that's what I want now. I don't want to be like living in a different, you know, or like, what am I going to find the husband who's going to come travel with me for, you know, two weeks to film a movie? Like how will they work? You know, like, I mean, I just, I miss it. I do miss it a lot. I miss the creativity. When I stopped dancing, it was really, really, really hard for me. Like I missed, I think what I missed more than anything was like the camaraderie and like the performance, like those two things, like the camaraderie of other performers, right? And getting to share in that like mutual high and the actual performance itself. Um, And it, you know, I think in life you start to find that you get that feeling in different ways. You know, like today it's now for me, it's like hosting a great podcast, like having amazing one-on-one conversations, you know, or watching my kids excel at something. And it's not the same. It's not like the same as when I was on stage. And even when I was a teacher, it wasn't the same. Like I could watch my dancers on stage, but it was never like, it could be amazing, but it was still nothing like doing it yourself. Um, But I think that when you are looking and you are open to it, you can find that feeling in other like normal everyday experiences too. Oh, totally. And I think you're right. There's something about that camaraderie and stuff. Like when you go to dance rehearsal, you know, and stuff, it's so fun. And the type of people that you get to hang with and, you know, like the friend, like we would have never known each other if it wasn't for that, you know? And, you know, even though we don't talk that often, like I still, you're still one of my favorite people. Like I, I care about you deeply. I think, you know, I respect you. I think I'm so proud. Like when I'm listening to you talk, I'm super emotional. I'm like, gosh, you're so good at this. When I look back at my life, I'm like, okay, I did so many different things. I pivoted so many times and like, you've had to like pivot tremendously. And it's like, okay, what don't I know? I don't know a lot of things. Right. But what I do know, I can apply to this situation. So like you think about your creativity and even when I'm just like listening to you talk and we, we touched on camaraderie, like you talk about having your staff meetings, like there's camaraderie in that, right? There's like being like, I don't know how to do this. Let's all work together. This is what the goal is. Let's go make it happen. Team. Like, let's go. So you're doing that. Like you see me from the outside. You're like, you're so talented and whatever, like hosting these conversations or being a mom or whatever, but like you're doing your version of that at transitions. Thank you. And I know that, but it is a different kind of, it's a different feeling. Like it's different. You know, it's a very, because it's mental health, it's so, it's so, um, you have to be so careful. Yeah. You know, imagine. like it's very, there's a fine line. It's like, it's almost scary sometimes because you're dealing with people's lives, you know, like I feel, and it's, we have the most fun too. Don't get me wrong. We have so much fun. I love my staff. I love the patients, but you know, it's, you have to be like this literally, you know, it's scary. How has being sober allowed you to move through like the difficult times in life, but also like in the workspace? So like for me, the most important things that I learned getting sober, which was like, first of all, this one was really hard, but that the world didn't revolve around me. Isn't it shocking? I couldn't believe it. I know. (laughs) I feel sometimes I'm like, are you sure? 
Are you sure? <laughs> You're like, I could have sworn. Yeah. But like, that's helped me. Girlfriend, you don't have to tell me twice. I had, I have, I know, I know, I know. Like every time somebody reacts, you know, I don't have to react. That was another big one for me. Sobri- I feel like sobriety teach- teaches you how to live. I, I, mm-hmm. Like literally, sobriety teaches you how to live. And I just, I feel like that was one of the biggest lessons. I, like don't take stuff personal. Don't react. That, if it wasn't for those things that sound like two little things, like I could, my whole world could turn upside down. But I just, you know, if you're having a bad day, I'm like, oh, she must be mad at me. You know, like it must be something I did. Like, girl, nobody's even thinking about you. Like it has nothing to do with me, you know? And that was a huge lesson for me. I feel like if it wasn't for those things, I can't imagine being able to have the the life skills that I have now. Do you ever want to go back out? You know, like, do you ever want to go back out and start drinking or using again? I always wonder, like, oh, could I ever? I'm like, you know, I could drink. That's what I think. Every every addict, I could drink. I'm like, I never had a problem with alcohol, really. I just drank, like, three bottles of wine a day. It wasn't a you know, I see people drinking and stuff and I'm like, oh, that looks fun on vacation or whatever. But, I know. But do I want to go? I play the tape out and I change my mind faster than I even thought about it. I'm like, no, I'm so much, even in my worst days, like you couldn't, you know, you couldn't, I mean, I say that now, I know nothing, you know, you never say never, nothing's impossible, but like there, it would be very hard to get me to go back out. Everybody to an extent has some form of like how they soothe right outside of themselves. Like it takes a lot of self-awareness to eliminate the need to self-soothe out, like to soothe outside of yourself. Right. So some people like work out like maniacs, you know, and they're addicted to working out and being, it's never enough to be like, they're never fit enough. Like they always want to be more fit and more fit. And then it's shopping, it's the things and it's, it's eating and it's, sex it's all these things that like soothe outside of ourselves and it takes and and i think we all do it to an extent you know like some cases are obviously like way more extreme than others but we all have some form of it and it requires a tremendous amount of self-awareness to like be like okay like what problem is that solving for me because it's usually not solving a problem and it's usually like satiating a temporary feeling and it's usually making the problem worse. Yeah. Like if I'm anxious and then I buy something and I know that like I am out of control, all I'm going to do is get more anxiety around it because I'm like, right. oh my gosh, how totally. much the bill? But that's the same thing with drinking, right? Like right. you think it's going to make it, us feel better, but it's a depressant. Yeah. So it makes us feel worse. So what has been the most important factor in your recovery? To tell the truth. Amen. We could end on that note because to tell the truth. And you know, it's so crazy that you're saying that, Joel, because like you were saying something before and I was going to ask you and then we started talking about something else. But I'm like, how has your honesty changed since you've been sober? So, I mean, on, and I know, like, I feel like I'm like speaking, you know, so highly of myself, but I've always been a pretty honest person. I was reflecting on that too about you. I was like, I feel like she's always been pretty honest. <laughs> I've always been pretty open. But I feel like my feelings, I would keep in a little bit, you know, like to pacify or to, you know, to make somebody else feel better or easier. I didn't want to be annoying or a burden. I, 
I just say exactly how I feel, even if it's annoying. Even when I was in treatment, like whatever I did that was wrong, you know, you're not supposed to listen, you know, my parents met close, you know, to where they went to treatment. So, you know, you couldn't tell I'm like, oh, I find my husband here, you know, like that's what I was looking for when I was in treatment. And you know, anything, if I, if I even thought a guy was, I would tell him myself, I would say, I think this, this is because I just wanted to get it all out. I feel like what saves me every single day in and day out is just being completely honest. And then I feel good. I feel, you know, my, I get irked by people who aren't authentic. Like I, it just, it irks my soul, which I don't know why. It's so important to me to just be who I am. Like that's how I feel like if you, if you have that, if you can do that, it's hard, you know, but for me, it's, it's been life changing. Joel, thank you so much for sharing that with me. This podcast was brought to you by Sana Skin Studio. Be sure to use my code, the no glow for $25 off of your first facial at Sana when booking via sanaskinstudio.com. More than a skin studio, Sana is a movement towards healthier skin and self-love. Thank you so much for listening to The No. If you loved this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. Words are so powerful and someone may need to hear what we covered today. And if you really loved this episode, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. Your comments are so important and valued and they give other listeners insight on what to expect on The Know. You can connect with me personally via Instagram at Nikki Sap Spo and The Know with Nikki Spo. My hope for you today is that you are fearless in looking inward so that you can be your highest, most authentic self and go after the life of your dreams. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.